0: And welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are, in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. Just a few assembly notices, then we get into our interview, uh, which connects to the podcast from earlier this week. So if you didn't hear it, you can get it, listen to that and then have a follow-up and you don't need to, they're not sort of, it's not like a serial where if you miss one episode you can't catch up, but it kind of helps. Um, uh, So here we go, Uh, The Notice, yeah, just a quick reminder of the live shows uh, coming up, Birmingham on March the 21st, 1,000 Trades, a uh, great venue in Birmingham, and then moving on to King's Place, March the 23rd in London, Belfast, March the 26th, uh, Rope Tackle Shoreham March the 29th, Witham in Barnard Castle, April the 1st, and the old Market Theatre, Brighton, on April the 24th. Uh, who knows what will frame those live shows uh, when we get to those uh, dates, but if you book the tickets, we will be making sense of it all live. Together. Oh, the joy of live shows. So that's coming up. But uh, now, more immediately, um, yeah, I've uh, been keen to speak to Theresa May's former chief of staff, Nick Timothy, for some time. Because in the podcast earlier this week, I argued that one of the reasons why this government is uh, being submerged by Almost the same issues as the Major government uh, in the build-up to 1997, but with a greater intensity. Major was a more somehow rounded figure than Sunak. He had won an election in 92, uh, and although he was by 97 wrecked uh, by his parliamentary party and his wider party, actually, Winning kind of changes a prime minister a bit and he had a much more substantial cabinet to the Sunak who is wrestling with the remnants of the Johnson era and before that actually. But my argument was that after 97 the Conservatives didn't really have a really grown-up debate about Why they lost in 97. Indeed, the tormentors of Major took greater control over time. William Hague tried to, to quote him, move on from the uh, previous era, uh, but couldn't, and deliberately in the end focused on a core vote strategy. Then they went arguably further to the right with Ian Duncan Smith. Michael Howard tried to settle the ship. David Cameron kind of claimed to be a modernizer, uh, but really wasn't. Uh, He was uh, a, a kind of turbocharged Thatcherite in terms of economic policy. Social reform, different, but economic policy. So they didn't really change. But there was one moment uh, where they might have done. And that was under Theresa May, when she came in and made a statement outside Number 10 that no Tory leader since Margaret Thatcher would have made, where she said it's time to talk about the good that government can do and that markets don't always work, and sometimes you have to intervene. And this was a theme that she repeated when she had the space to do so throughout her time in government. Uh, Now, it raises many interesting questions, this, because, of course, it wasn't really Theresa May uttering those words. Well, it was, but they were written for her by Nick Timothy. And it was so ironic, really, because all the sort of columnists... uh, Kind of described this period as a shift to the right, because columnists on the whole fell for the Cameron argument that he was a centrist and a modernizer, uh, and they saw all of this as a shift to the right, but economically, the intention was emphatically to uh, move the conservatives back to the center ground, so called and to become closer to the sort of one nation tradition in some respects. but the interesting question is did may really believe that? Um, And Nick Timothy is interesting on that. And what would have been the kind of vision if it had been space to develop? This was the moment. But, of course, it was lost amidst the chaos of Brexit. Uh, Another irony, really, because Nick Timothy was a strong supporter of Brexit. Theresa May was a Remainer, of course, his boss. It was a moment when perhaps if she had been strong enough and he had remained in number 10. They could have moved the Conservative Party on to a new place uh, more suited for the uh, current challenges. Thatcherism was absolutely a product of the late 70s, early 80s, but they can't let go of it. Nick Timothy wanted to certainly address elements of it and change it. And if you remember, some people said when she spoke outside number 10 for the first time, they thought it was Ed Miliband speaking. Ed Miliband was thrilled hearing this statement. Anyway, I thought it'd be interesting to hear from Nick Timothy in the context of our many discussions about the Conservative Party. And in a way, they are the key, because even though it looks as if they're going to lose the next general election, they usually win them. And the electorate in England are hugely tolerant. Maybe that's one of the factors why they haven't fundamentally changed. They tend to vote them in. So what happens to this party is absolutely fundamental. You may disagree with Nick Timothy on many things, or you may not. But I've always thought that in his analysis, he was potentially moving the party into a more fruitful place than where it has been stuck, where it is stuck under Sunak. I think the fundamental problem with Sunak, uh, uh, Keir Starmer has said, oh, you, you, you know, are you up to the job and all the rest of it? Quite right, because weakness is loathed by the media and the electorate. But it's also an ideological problem. If you are stuck in that sort of Thatcherite place, it's very hard to address the challenges of now. Anyway, this was our conversation, uh, and i would be very interested to hear from you uh, what you think of it. Nick Timothy, thanks so much for joining us. Could I begin by asking you uh, something which is hypothetical but might shine light on things? In this podcast, one of the things we're obsessed with in a kind of lightish way is how government works, how we can make it work better. And I wonder if Famously, when Theresa May came in in 2016 and then in the manifesto in 2017, there was a big focus on making government work, on saying that the the good that government can do, that markets alone aren't always effective in delivery. So I wonder what you think conservative Britain would be like if we strip out all the dramas that happened that really kind of stifled and undermined that agenda. What do you think Britain would be like if you'd had a kind of relatively straightforward go at imposing that vision on Britain? Uh, Well, there's a challenge.
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think in a way you could probably... Uh, imagine it's rather like the Christian democratic governments of certain European countries. Uh, So so you'd have a state that plays a more strategic role in the economy. I think it's pretty difficult to imagine how you successfully level up and rebalance the economy in terms of sectors and geography without the state playing some kind of strategic role in that. Uh, So you'd have to have some kind of industrial strategy working out how you link up your trade policy with your transport infrastructure with your skills. Uh, I think that probably has to go hand in hand with the regional policy and the decentralization of power to the right kind of levels. Uh, but I think you'd probably also see more active governments in terms of looking at the way certain markets work and try to reform those markets uh, so that they're more efe- efficient, efficient and effective for, for customers.
0: And also, of course, there would be a social care policy, wouldn't there? I mean, it was in the manifesto. If you'd won with a majority, that would have happened too.
1: Uh, well, that was the idea. But of course, the social care policy we proposed as part of the problem in the 17 election. So we obviously yeah. didn't get that far. Yeah,
0: yeah. But the idea was to introduce it. And it still hasn't happened, even though Boris Johnson attempted it. So that's a sort of outline of where we might have been under different circumstances. What has happened? I mean, there you were in number 10 with the theoretical power. Obviously, all the stuff about Brexit and the election kind of blew it apart. What has happened to that parliamentary party? Because looking at it now, you can see a sort of Liz Truss faction, which isn't uh, advocating your agenda. There are people coalescing around Boris Johnson, although I can see uh, Johnson Sort of he called himself a Brexitee heseltine didn't he is that is would yeah. you call yourself that actually uh <laughs>
1: well <laughs> um I I, in a way i mean i don't, i don't really i don't love uh sort of attaching yourself to the memory of a specific individual because times change and uh you know they like anybody else uh you know including me uh sort of, you know make mistakes or have character flaws and things like that We're all a bit different um but i mean for a while Boris did. Pick up this kind of agenda it was more open to government doing things, more open to spending. I think he was um driven to those things by force of electoral logic. So he understood that after Brexit, uh, which you know killed the coalition of voters that um that had elected David Cameron uh that there was probably only really one place to go for the Tory party, which was to deliver brexit and to try to appeal uh to the coalition of voters who had supported leave, which was part of you know what a lot of people perceived as a big realignment in politics and to and to appeal to those people who were you know outside the traditional Tory electoral coalition um uh they were quite often more working class, uh they lived in in often poorer, more provincial places, uh, that he needed to uh, embrace the state really. Now, the problem I think in the end was uh he didn't really have an especially detailed plan as to what that meant. Um and and of course you do have to make choices and the famous cakeism strategy uh, if you can call it a strategy, in the end runs out of road. And, you know, the events that the country went through, uh, the pandemic, then the energy crunch and so on, were obviously unusual. But like all political events, they forced choices on politicians. And, and you know, the, the Tory party since Boris has chosen uh, to apply, well, Firstly it chased through through Liz I think a fairly disastrous uh, libertarian experiment with the economy but then but then after that has has had to kind of correct and apply a fiscal squeeze
0: whereas with you it 's clearly a, a matter of conviction, not expediency, this belief in a more active state. Have you always had that conviction as As a Tory, and to go back to my question, which I sort of half asked, but then got sidetracked by the conflation of Heseltine and Johnson, why is there not a more rooted part of the parliamentary party kind of forming – I mean, there are many factions in that parliamentary party, but I can't see one pursuing your agenda at the moment.
1: Well, I think actually there are, um, there are MPs who who back this kind of approach. You know, it's quite often summarized as uh, left on the economy and right on culture. I don't want to sort of out them, as it were, um, <laughs> right now. Um, uh, you know, MPs have their own sort of strategies for revealing their own um, sets of beliefs. But there are... There are, there are um, plenty of Conservative MPs who think like this. Um, Some of them are in red wall seats, some of them are in more traditional, uh, safer Conservative seats. Uh, So it is still there for in the future. When you say you don't want to out them,
0: is it almost something to be slightly reticent about
1: in the current Tory parliamentary party? Well I think um no I don't, it's not that it's a question of embarrassment it's more it's more that I don't want to speak for people sure. uh, uh and put words into their mouths. Um I think you know Rishi's approach uh, uh I think firstly the the fiscal squeeze was unfortunately necessary after what had happened with the Liz experiment. I hope what we will see in the year ahead is that actually some of the decisions set out in uh, in Jeremy Hunt's emergency uh, mini-budget will actually prove to be unnecessary because inflation will hopefully start to fall and energy prices will uh, will also fall. Um, uh, so we'll have to see what choices the government makes if that is indeed the case and there is a little bit more room uh, on the fiscal side.
0: In terms of where Brexit fits in with all of this, it seems to me again that you're in a very interesting position because I form the impression anyway that most Brexiteers in the Tory Parliamentary Party see it as a route, as one of them put it to me, to really turbocharge Thatcherism, to have a smaller state, to become competitive on the basis of much lower taxation and therefore probably lower public spending, although they would argue growth would become so great public spending could be financed that isn't actually your economic vision is it in terms of um how you implement brexit
1: no it's not at all uh, and it, i mean obviously it is the case that among some conservative leavers the plan was always to leave for economic reasons to escape european uh, regulations uh, and policies and to deregulate and cut taxes and so on i think that was always really unlikely as a as a potential outcome from brexit firstly it's inconsistent with the support of leave voters m- many of whom want the security of the state and we're actually voting for more security uh, and the solidarity of of nationhood in voting to leave uh, because they wanted things like controls on immigration and so on but also it's not really consistent with the challenges of our time we uh, we have an aging population, that means more and more pensioners needing more health care, more social care, uh, more pension payments, fewer working age people relative to those pensioners. Uh, so the overall rate of tax, I think, is going to be difficult to reduce for the foreseeable future anyway. And then if you think about the challenges of the way in which the world is changing with power transferring from west to east, and this was brought home really in the pandemic, uh, what China intends to do with its newfound power. Actually, the challenge of our, our time in that respect, it's about how we make sure that we're secure, we have resilience in our economy, we're not too dependent on super stretched uh, global supply chains, uh, and that there's enough domestic production here at home. Uh, so I don't really see how how that vision for life after Brexit was ever especially likely.
0: Although they're still trying it, aren't they, with the ending all regulations sort of a bonfire of regulations and calling for Sunak to cut taxes now as part of a kind of Brexit settlement. Um, That seems to be where a lot of the focus is. What was, in 2016, 2017, your vision for Brexit? Why were you... Uh, so keen. And of course, you voted for Brexit. I know, obviously, Theresa May didn't, but you did. Uh, What was your kind of, was it a more, I don't know, was it for more cultural reasons? Uh, Was it Westminster sovereignty reasons?
1: It was mainly um, about democracy for me. So yes, it is the case that some people voted for it because they wanted to fundamentally change the economic model of the country. For me, the European Union is in the end, incompatible with parliamentary democracy and, and and democratic control. And I think like quite a lot of other people uh, who worked in government in the years running up to Brexit, actually the the experience of dealing with the European Union actually made plenty of us more Eurosceptic and and, and pushed some of us who you know, didn't like the European Union very much, but perhaps might have uh, uh, stopped short of saying we should leave. Um that that experience maybe pushed some of us actually into the leave camp. Now that's not to say that we should stick to exactly the same economic model that we had while we were in the EU. Because you know, if you think that you can leave something like the European Union and the single market and carry on doing exactly as you were doing before, then actually the probability is that that you might end up a little poorer. Uh, than you might otherwise have been. So you do have to change economically. To me, that is about uh, being more strategic. It's about being more nimble. Uh, So it's not about wholesale deregulation, but it might be about changing big regulatory frameworks. There are several examples of that from uh, whether you're talking about public procurement or the regulation of uh, financial assets and things like that.
0: In your book, you argue, uh, I was going to say you argue against globalization, but you argue against those who've just kind of accepted globalization or hail globalization. What do you think in the current context can be done about it to give people who feel powerless in the face of globalization a greater sense of control, to use the word of the moment? For example, do you relate in some respect, uh, let's take Brexit out of it for a second, to Keir Starmer's new use of taking back control, which appears to be quite a lot of devolution of power?
1: Well, I think on globalisation, I mean, firstly, you know, the technologies um, and and some of the practices that make globalisation possible aren't going to go anywhere. So the world is still going to feel global in lots of fundamental ways. But the nature of globalization and what has happened through the process of globalization over the past few decades uh, is a matter of political choices. Uh, So the terms on which China was admitted into the international trading system, for example, the way in which Western countries have tolerated the Chinese abuse of uh, that world trading system the way in which trade agreements have been struck, the way in which some of those trade agreements will protect services and the professionals who work in services industries while opening up Western markets to manufactured goods from uh, from countries where labour costs are lower. These, these things are all choices and they've all changed the shape of the world economy and our domestic economies too. We can, to some degree... Uh, have a conversation and make choices about the nature of globalization. Now, Britain obviously can't do that unilaterally, but Western countries collectively can. And this is already starting to happen, uh, where sadly, you know, America through its semiconductor strategy uh, and the measures it's taking uh, against China and trying to slow Chinese technological advances and transfers of knowledge from American businesses. To China, this is this is starting to to pull America and some of its allies away from China. Now, at the moment, uh, the European Union I think thinks it can stand between America and China, but in reality, if America decides that uh, it really is going to impose some kind of decoupling, given the extent of American uh, financial and economic power and the ability of its sanctions regime to sort of really reach into other countries, I think we're going to see European countries being forced to make a choice at some point. So so the globalisation uh, that that we've known through most of our lives, uh, I think, is gone. It's, it's changing quite quickly.
0: That will mean, for example, I don't know, cheap Chinese imports, which already, of course, is uh, not as cheap as they were, all-ending, which is, again, another massive economic challenge, isn't it, for a country like Britain, which has been so dependent, seemingly anyway, on, I don't know, uh, cheap imports from China and other places, which might also become part of a new order, uh, you know, as as you envisage it.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, we we shouldn't shy away from the fact that as these Things happen uh, you know if there is a decoupling between the West and China, that will have inflationary pressures on western economies uh, and so and so we may be in for a a period of of higher prices for some time. but I think you know I think this is actually connected to questions that we should be asking ourselves anyway about the nature of our own economy so it feels, in many ways, like we're reaching the end of the road for the economic model that we've had through my whole lifetime, uh, where you know the attitude has been, well, it doesn't really matter if you run these huge trade deficits. We've got a floating currency and we can do different things to to protect the value of the currency anyway, which is about attracting foreign investment, which basically then leads to an attitude where a very liberal attitude to, uh, to selling all sorts of different domestic assets, which I think then gets you into this kind of uh, negative spiral. Um, this sort of attitude that uh, actually being a services economy is a sign of maturity and late stage development and that we don't need to be too diverse in terms of the sectors of the economy we have that actually you know it's great that we've got a world city and it doesn't matter very much whether the regions are struggling because you know we can we can redistribute and we can uh and we can play around a little bit but we don't need to worry too much about the success of uh you know the midlands and the north of england or wales or whatever that attitude uh and that set of policies has really reached the end, and we're going to need to try to develop a new way of uh, looking at economic policy and strategy, which is based much more on, uh, you know, it's put it at its most simple: How do we, as a country, make and do and sell more of what the world needs? That is the way in which we can deal with the trade deficit. That is the way in which we can start to reduce some of the. Perverse policies that arise from the trade deficit. That is how uh, we will uh, rebalance the economy in the end.
0: With the government playing a very active
1: role. Yeah, I think you wouldn't be able to do it without the government playing an active role. And I think if you think that you can level up without fundamentally changing the the economic model of the country, uh, then I think you're being a little naive. Because really, what you're talking about, yeah, is is redistributing. Um, some pots of cash decentralizing a little bit of power, uh moving some uh you know wings of the state to some places outside the southeast now, these things might help a bit, but they 're not going to deliver those the real sort of revolutionary change that that I think we really need
0: as part of that revolution in your book, you describe uh your vision for civic capitalism, which some saw as quite similar to Ed Miliband's call for responsible capitalism. Is it similar? Do do, do you you see a sort
1: of connection between the two? There may be some similarities in analysis of the problem, but I think, I mean, Ed Miliband's politics are are rather different to mine. I think when sometimes I think people think that when conservatives talk in the way i do it must this must be a little bit left wing or suspicious <laughs> uh in this kind of way and and i think the point is that the choice is not between a kind of libertarian sort of right wing economics and some hugely redistributive socialism this kind of middle ground that i'm talking about i think is uh, that you you use the power of the state to try to reestablish the things that are missing and holding back the conditions for market-led growth in places that have lost a lot of their civic confidence and social capital. Uh, so you're trying to you're trying to use the state to allow the to the to allow the market to to bring growth. This isn't some hugely redistributive thing. It's about how you try to change the nature of the economy so that it works for more people.
0: You've had plenty of time to reflect on this. Do do you think that Theresa May believed in this agenda or espoused it because she revered you frankly <laughs> um that i mean a lot of people say oh this was nick timothy uh and and she said it but but i i didn't sense she did it with the same conviction that you articulate it now and obviously behind the scenes then
1: i think if i'm absolutely honest there probably was a little too much of me in it uh which you know i don't think i realized or accepted at the time um and so i think it's really important that in politics when a political leader is advocating something that you know they really believe it in their bones you know, you'd have to ask theresa whether that was the case or not i thought so at the time uh who knows um you know that that authenticity uh really matters you know going back to what we were saying earlier there's there there's a there's a group of conservatives out there who are who are interested in that, these ideas. In fact, actually, I think the increase in awareness of the problems caused by Chinese power and Chinese involvement in our economy is leading some conservatives who I think didn't think in these terms to start to uh, accept that there probably does need to be a greater role for the state in the economy that actually international free trade is a lovely concept, but it's not really real. And that, you know, we need to be a bit more realistic about the way we engage with, in, with the world in these respects.
0: Could I ask you, uh, and it's interesting, by the way, isn't it, that China could be the route to uh, some of your colleagues in the parliamentary party coming towards supporting a more active state here. It's quite an interesting route through
1: which they end up doing so yeah I think it is uh, but I think it is genuinely happening so i think yeah. i think some people so, some who uh who take a robust view of foreign policy and national security uh i think just sort of you know, haven't really revisited some of their assumptions about economic policy for a while mm. and I think it's through the, the their their thinking about security that they've started to move on the economy i mean other people have Moved for different reasons, whether that's because of their experience representing uh, sort of regional constituencies, or uh, or whether it's because you know Brexit has shone a light in certain places and challenges in communities, or whether it is actually that the party has set itself this task or did set itself this task of trying to level up the country, and and as you kind of in, interrogate things intellectually, you you sort of realise well uh, you know maybe we've been waiting for these things to happen because of the invisible hand of the market. Maybe it's invisible because it's not there. Um, And and you need the state to do this.
0: Could I finally ask you, uh, someone who was in number 10 at an intensely challenging time post the Brexit referendum in terms of managing the parliamentary party and the nature of the wider challenge. Rishi Sunak now, if you were advising him, say, on the strikes, would you be advising him to
1: Settle or stay tough well it, it's obviously very difficult, and um you know the horrible truth about inflation is it means that collectively we are not as well off as we expected to be and hoped we would be if you granted the entire country inflation proof pay rises, then you don't really get anywhere and in the public sector, if you do it um then there's a big question about affordability and what that means for you. Uh, in terms of fiscal policy or the amounts you're spending on the things that you really do need to be investing in, uh, you know, capital budgets or, uh, or whatever. Um, so the truth is, uh, unfortunately, none of us really is going to uh, win inflation-busting pay rises. We're all going to collectively overall be worse off than we hoped we would be. In reality, uh, they're going to have to uh, make an offer that is that feels reasonable it's probably going to be higher than those that are on the table i would think at some point but you know, these are these are very difficult times and 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 you know not everyone's going to get what they want
0: would you spend more now on the leveling up agenda
1: well i think you have to deal in reality and and after what happened last year um and with the with the pressures, with the bond markets, uh, there did need to be a fiscal correction. That is what uh, Rishi and Jeremy Hunt uh, delivered, and they did stabilize things. In the end, uh, if we are to level up the country, we are going to have to invest. Uh, we're going to have to invest in in obvious things like um, transport infrastructure and so on. We're going to have to invest in people through alternatives to the education um, options that people have post-18 at the moment. We're going to need to spend a lot of time and money giving people technical education, vocational education, and retraining opportunities through people's lives as, as technologies and the economy change faster than they have through our lives so far. But it's not just about spending money. It is about, I think, changing policy. Then That is you know, in part about things like making choices with the overall tertiary education budget, for example. It is about decentralizing power. It is about being more strategic and making sure that you get proper bang for your buck when you're spending on infrastructure. But I do think overall, the most important thing is actually trying to look at the economic model we have and trying to move to something that is that, that leaves the country more capable of producing the things that the world needs. So we eliminate the trade def- deficits we create more jobs outside the service sector, not just in manufacturing, but in the creative industries and things like that, uh, that will give people good, well paid, mid skilled jobs across the country.
0: You had one advantage, Uh, maybe the others, um, but certainly one, when you were in number 10, in that the opinion polls suggested the Conservatives were well ahead, and that's always a kind of buttress. The 2017 election, of course, famously suggested that those polls weren't necessarily right. But uh, what is clear is the polls are suggesting the Tories are miles behind now. As someone with a very clear set of uh, distinct ideas for the future of the party, and who I think has been openly wary of the kind of Cameron modernizing project, do you think there is a case for saying, well, a party is inevitably exhausted after a long period in power? And maybe in opposition, uh, there could be a really creative and constructive debate with people like you putting one argument and others Calling for a smaller state or whatever, uh, can you see the case for that in the context of this long period?
1: Now you're out of it and writing columns and doing loads of other things. No. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> um, well, I think you should never, you should never want to be in opposition. Our system is pretty binary. I am um, you know, there are still opportunities to win power and mayoralties and local councils and so on. But, um but actually. Our system is pretty binary. You're either in government or you're out. And when you're out, the other side is changing the country in the ways it sees fit uh, and that you might not like and there's not very much you can do about it. So I think the people who sometimes think, oh, well, it's you know, it's time for a bit of opposition, are a little naive about that. Being an opposition party is it's, it's very difficult. People think, well, it's it's not that hard, is it? It's just about criticising the government and scrutinising the government. Uh, you know, you lose so much control and influence of the news agenda and and so on so you're not governments aren't totally in control of events but oppositions certainly aren't in control of events there is something about uh the the space of opposition for new arguments to be made which is very difficult to do uh when you for example when you have a change of prime minister uh when your party is already in power because you know the new leader might you know in Rishi's case he'd been chancellor there was uh, a few weeks on the backbenches but you know he'd been doing a big job when Theresa became prime minister she'd been home, sec- home secretary for years a lot of the sort of mental space that these people have is devoted to doing the job it's your own party's guy who's the prime minister if you do anything especially overt in terms of trying to build coalitions of support with think tanks colonists you know thinkers academics, it looks pretty disloyal it causes a political problem so you can't actually make you can't actually prepare before you become prime minister in the way that a leader of the opposition can uh so there is there is something in it. But I would never advise that it is the right way of thinking. Do do you finally feel you still have
0: influence? You've written – I've referred to the book that you've written. Um, You write a weekly uh, column which will be widely read in the Conservative Party and beyond. Do you still feel you have influence or is there nothing to beat being – were you a joint chief of staff in number 10 uh, when – Clearly, power is sort of in your hands, and especially as you say, you know there was a lot of you in what Theresa May was saying
1: well I mean, I think having a newspaper column is a tremendous privilege, and uh, there's plenty of scope for people um who are outside government uh to influence in all sorts of ways uh you know whether that's through writing books or policy reports or newspaper columns or you know making arguments uh that uh that that hopefully people will pick up in the party there is nothing like uh the power inside government now obviously you know rightly that power sort of lies with ministers the elected politicians and advisers are influential um but you know there's a reason why the conservative party has a reputation for being hungry for power um there's not very much point in in being sort of ideological and and very interesting and talk about all sorts of uh sort of you know books and ideas and things that people are proposing elsewhere in opposition and never getting to do it yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so you know power, power in the end is what it's all about do you speak to
0: theresa may do you sort of reflect on that extraordinary period you had we don't really talk anymore i'm afraid so uh, so no right Right. Okay. Well, look, thank you so much indeed for giving up the time to um, discuss some of the ideas in your book and in your columns and that you advanced also in government. Nick Timothy, thank you so
1: much. Thanks for having me on.
0: So that was uh, Nick Timothy reflecting on um, the degree to which he influenced Theresa May and his uh, views and the degree again to which it is currently Supported within the Conservative Parliamentary Party, certainly the more vocal factions, and of course there are many factions. It's become a more difficult Parliamentary Party to lead than the Labour Party, which is saying something actually uh, in terms of the Parliamentary Labour Party's past. Um, and uh, but uh, you know you don't hear many vocal uh, MPs making that sort of argument about economics and interventionism and the role of uh, government. But it's interesting that Nick Timothy says they are there, but they need to speak for themselves, obviously. So there we are. Uh, we're in for, uh, I suspect, a tempestuous few days. Uh, in, uh, well, what am I talking about? Few days, few years in terms of the way this parliamentary party, the Tory parliamentary party evolves uh, in uh, the build up to the budget and beyond. So you know what I'm going to say, we need to get together on a twice weekly basis now to make sense of it all. So let's get together very soon, early in the week uh, to, uh, yeah, well, I'll pluck out a theme and see what you think about it. Um, Anyway, in the meantime, have a great time. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye.